Thank you very much, and good morning. My name is Randy, and uh, it's a privilege to be with you this morning again. Um, our eyes have been fastened on how Hurricane Ian has uh, slammed into Florida and up the coast. And one of the sad things is how many people have died. Uh, I keep seeing the numbers go up. Yes, I think it was last night, uh, they said 76 people so far have been counted. And, and what's sad, you know, is that a lot of those folks weren't able to get out. They didn't, they had warning, but uh, maybe because of their health condition or they were elderly or they were in a hospital, they weren't able to get out. But also there were people there who said to themselves, I've been through hurricanes before and I'm not really worried about it, I'm going to stay where I am. And um, it's human nature, isn't it? Not to want to believe something we haven't seen. I've seen hurricanes, so I believe in what I've seen. Now they're telling me that this could be the worst hurricane that could ever hit Florida. I'm not worried. I'm sure there were a few who died because of that. It's really difficult for us as human beings to believe in what we cannot see. And yet our brother just read the scripture that we cannot see God. That's what it tells us in John chapter 1 verse 18. No one has seen God. A lot of people have difficulty believing in God because they can't see him. That may be you this morning. Maybe you struggle to believe that God exists. And that's why it's good news that we're studying the Gospel of John because he's all about helping us understand that Jesus makes the invisible God visible. This is our third message on the prologue, the introduction of John, and he started right out in the first five verses saying who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He's the eternal God, he's been with God from the beginning, all things were made through him. And then he goes on in verses 6 through 13 to say, by the way, there's a witness to this. The witness is John the baptizer. And God is so intent on us seeing that he exists so we can believe in him that he sent a witness. And then he talks about <clears throat> how we can know God through believing in Christ, how some reject him, but others receive him. Now we get to verses 14 to 18, which kind of sum up what he's been trying to say, and we see the pattern. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have the word, and then we have the witness, and now in these verses we have the word again and the witness. And right in the middle is you must be born again. You must be born from on high. So what I would like to do is just walk through John 1, verses 14 to 18. It is so rich that it may take two or three hours to get through it. So please, fasten your seatbelts, put on your helmets, and let's plunge in to the deep waters of who Jesus is. What we're going to see here are three witnesses and a summary or conclusion. And the main idea is... To see God, get to know Jesus. 
Jesus makes the invisible God visible. So, let's look at it. Right away, he says in verse 14, in this witness, we have seen his glory. Who is the we? Well, he could be including all people since Jesus Christ first came to this planet. But I think his reference may be to the disciples and especially the narrator, the person who's writing this, who we think is the Apostle John. He said, we've seen his glory. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. One of the good resources I've found is the ESV Study Bible. Anybody use that here, the ESV Study Bible? Raise your hand. Okay, there's a few of you that use it. It's a great resource, and I liked what they said about this verse. This is the most amazing event in all of history, the eternal, omnipotent, that means all-powerful, omnipresent, that means he's all, always with us, infinite, infinitely holy, Son of God took on human nature, lived among humanity as one who is both God and man at the same time in one person. I mean, it is the most amazing event in history and life-changing to anyone who meets Jesus Christ. He makes five affirmations in this verse. Let's look at those one by one, these five affirmations. First of all, he says, Jesus Christ became a real human being. He said, the word became flesh. In verse 1, he said, the word was God. Now he's telling us that this God became a human being, a real human being, not just a ghost. He took on flesh and blood. We know the stories from Matthew and Luke about the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary, who was a virgin, and she bore Jesus Christ. What's amazing about this is that Isaiah 40, verse 6 says, all flesh is like grass. That is, we humans are limited because of our humanity. And God of the universe became a human being, vulnerable, fragile, but without sin. It's an amazing statement of Jesus becoming a human being. And secondly, he said, he pitched his tent with us. This dwelling with us is literally the word tabernacled. He tabernacled with us and it immediately takes us back to the book of Exodus where Moses was told by God to build this mobile worship tent called a tabernacle. It was the place where God and his people would meet. The tabernacle and then later the temple became symbolic of the place where the people of Israel and God could meet. But here we're told that Jesus tabernacled with us. He's bringing us from Exodus and showing how that's fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And it alerts us to how things are changing. There is an old covenant and a new covenant. This tabernacling means that Jesus now lives with us. In fact, in Matthew chapter 2, when the angel spoke to Joseph, he said, uh, quoting from Isaiah, 
he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. That's what the word Emmanuel means, God with us. Jesus coming fulfills the Old Testament symbolism for God's dwelling with us. Third, he revealed his glory. Again, this seeing his glory goes back to Moses. It's amazing how the Old Testament informs this passage. John is thinking about the Old Testament story of Moses. In Exodus 33, verse 7 through chapter 34, verse 35, Moses is in a dialogue with God about um, his presence with them because God has been so angry at them building this golden calf. He says, you Israelites can go on to the promised land and Moses, you lead them, but I'm not going with you. And Moses is pleading with God. He says, if you don't go with us, how will anyone see the distinction that we have, that, that we're a distinct people? You've got to go with us. And he's begging God. And, and then you see another tent that's called this tent of meeting where Moses goes and meets with God and Joshua is a part of it. And then in verse 18 of chapter 33, he cries out, show me your glory. He's so desperate to have God go with him. And in this amazing account, God comes again and gives him a second chance on the Ten Commandments, writing them in stone. Moses, when he meets with God, comes out of the tent and comes down from the mountain, his face shining, and it scares people. He's been in the presence of the glory of God. This is the backdrop to what he states here. He revealed his glory. What is glory? Well, glory is a Hebrew word, kabod, which means God's goodness made visible. All that God is, is made visible. And the Old Testament visible manifestation was the acts of power that God did. We're going to learn about one in the near future, lifting up a snake in the wilderness so that people could look on it and be healed. God, in many ways, shows his glory this is what Moses is longing to see. But the Bible tells us you can't see God and live. <laughs> I have to laugh every time I read the Old Testament and you see the glory of God filling the tabernacle and people are just dumbfounded. They're just overwhelmed by who God is. Same thing happens in the temple. This glory is now being revealed through Jesus. And we're going to see it as we go through John. In the first 12 chapters, we see seven signs. The first is making wine out of water at a wedding. We're going to see all of these signs. And the ultimate sign of the glory of Jesus Christ is a man hanging on a cross, bearing the weight of our sin. This is the God who reveals his glory. Fourth, he said he is the one and only son, the unique son. The point he's trying to make is when you look at Jesus, you see all of the attributes of God himself. Jesus is God's son. Jesus is God. And you look at him and you see him, unique human being, the God-man. 
And then fifth, he says, he's full of grace and truth. Those words, grace and truth, again, parallel back to Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, where we read these words, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love is the new reference to grace. Chesed it is, God's loyal covenant love and faithfulness. He's faithful and true. Jesus would go on to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Pilate would mock him, what is truth? We're standing before him, is truth personified? All these claims are made of Jesus Christ and it boggles our minds. You know, Moses' face shined as he came out of the tent, but that shining faded. Jesus' glory never fades. I like what it says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, maybe written by the same writer of the Gospel of John. This is what we think. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. I underline those in my Bible. We heard him. We saw him. We saw him with our own eyes. We touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This is the one who is life itself is revealed to us and we've seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then he was revealed to us. This witness is pointing to the glory of Jesus Christ. But it takes faith to see it, doesn't it? Even when Jesus was on earth, doing these amazing miracles. Some would not believe. It takes faith. You know, I want you to think about this. Why did Jesus become the word that became flesh? There's some implications here that I think we need to come to terms with, even on this first verse. The first is why he came. He came because we needed to be saved. We're human beings that are sinners by nature and by choice. And unless God became a human being, there was no way to rescue us from our plight. This God came to save us. He also came to identify with us in his weakness. He's able to say to us, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Anybody here heavy laden this morning? Anyone here in need of rest? (laughs) Jesus has walked where we walk. And because the word became flesh, he identifies with us. And that leads us thirdly to just to praise him to praise our Emmanuel, our God with us, who never leaves us or forsakes us. Isn't it good to know that we're not alone in this world? And even if our family turns against us, we're not alone. We have our God and we have our church family. God is with us. The Word became flesh. 
Now we're only on the first witness. We've got several more points to go. I told you this would take two hours. So let's go on to look at verse 15 because it's not just the witness of the apostles and the church, but secondly, John again shows up, John the baptizer. Not John who wrote the, the gospel, but John the baptizer. And he bore witness to Jesus and he cried out, this is whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. John the Baptist sees Jesus rank. I want you to notice a couple things here. This bore witness is literally the word testifies, and uh, Greek grammarians have pointed out that it's present tense, which means John is still speaking to us. The very fact that we're reading these words is John, again, testifying to us of the glory of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is that Jesus is superior to himself. He says, he existed before me, even though John, if you remember, John was in his mother's womb, Elizabeth. Mary was newly pregnant, came to visit her, and John leaped in his mother's womb when he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was older than Jesus, chronologically, but he recognizes that Jesus is the eternal God. He existed before me. And not only that, he says, and he is first. In the, in the original language, it says, and he is the first, which means numero uno. Head honcho, uh, the, the primary person of the universe. John is testifying again to the glory of Jesus. I don't know if any of you enjoy reading the Reformers from the 1600s. <laughs> so I'm taking a risk here reading this, but it's a quote by John Calvin, who was one of the Reformers from Geneva, Switzerland, who uh, was converted and had a wonderful ministry of writing and teaching, and he taught through many of the books of the Bible, most of them. And this is what he said about this passage. He says, it follows that Christ, when he became a man, did not cease to be what he formerly was, that is God, and that no change took place in the eternal essence of God, which was clothed with flesh. In short, the Son of God began to be man in such a manner that he still continues to be the eternal word who had no beginning of time. What John Calvin is telling us is what John is telling us, John the baptizer. Jesus is God and man, one person, two natures. That's his witness. But there's another witness. It's not only the gospel writer and John the baptizer, but even Moses and the law is a witness to Jesus. Verses 16 to 17 tell us that Moses and the law point to him. And this, by the way, shows us how the Old Testament and New Testament fit together. He said, from his fullness, and he's describing all that he's said in verses 1 through 18, God's unmerited favor, that's his grace, brings blessing and joy to people like us, even though we don't deserve it. It's grace upon grace. Now, I, I used to read that and I think, Grace upon grace, grace and even more grace. And I do think it has that implication. But actually, the original language uses a word that usually means in place of, instead of, beyond, 
And we say, well, why would he say grace instead of grace? Well, then we look at the next verse, 17. For the law was given through Moses. That's the first grace. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He's saying that when God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt, remember the Passover, redeemed them through the blood of the Lamb, brought them to Mount Sinai, he, in a gracious act, gave them the law. It reflects the holiness of God. It helped them learn how to reverence him and treat each other as they made their wilderness journey to the promised land. It was a gracious gift of God, but it was limited in that no one could live up to it. It was gracious, but limited. And that's why people had to continue offering all these sacrifices. But now in Christ, we see grace surpassing grace. Jesus is fulfilling the law, becoming a human being, and through his death and resurrection will provide a grace beyond our wildest expectations. A grace that's not only for Jewish people, but all who believe. All who believe get in. It's an amazing statement that he's making here. Jesus is preached by all the words of the Bible. And his grace is the new covenant. I have to say this. There are popular preachers today. I'm not going to pick on anyone personally, but uh, it's common to hear today, even among evangelicals. Well, you don't really need to deal with the Old Testament. In fact, if you're doing any witnessing, it's better not to use the Old Testament. It could just offend people. I'm telling you, when you look at what's behind John chapter 1, look at what you miss. Look how the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ and shows one glory after another, one grace after another, one amazing attribute of God through the life of Jesus Christ. Our Old Testaments inflame us and show us the truth of who Jesus really is. Read your Bibles. But that's an aside. That's witness number three. We need to get to the summary because we don't have two hours, do we? Here's the point he's trying to make. Jesus Christ makes the invisible God visible. No one has ever seen God, verse 18. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God in his essential being and lived through it. When Moses said, show me your glory, the Lord said, I can't. But he said, hide in the cleft of a rock and I'll pass by and you can see my shadow or, or the light of my presence. Exodus 33, verses 18 to 20. He said, this Jesus made him known. The word made him known is literally the word from which we get our exegesis, study of the Bible. Jesus explains who God is 
through his coming. Though Moses was denied seeing God, Jesus alone was with the Father. In fact, it says in the Father's bosom, literally, in intimate relationship with God. And now, through Christ, we can see God. Christ has revealed God so we can know him through Christ. Jesus' identity, the essence of who he is, makes his words God's words. He broke through the barrier. There's so many references in the Bible about Jesus breaking through the barrier, Ephesians chapter 2, or tearing the temple curtain in half. To think that a human being could approach a holy God. I mean, it's, it's like trying to fly into the sun in a rocket ship. You're going to burn up. I think it was John Piper who gave this illustration. He said, when you think of the holiness and glory of God and flying, I mean, you'd burn up. You need some kind of an asbestos suit around you so that you can fly into the sun to see it. And that asbestos suit is the righteousness of Jesus. He clothes us so that we can come into the Father's presence and adore him for who he is. This is Jesus. Jesus is God and human being, one person with two natures. He is the perfect teacher. If you need wisdom and knowledge, seek it from Jesus Christ. He's the perfect example of how to live. But most of all, he's the perfect sacrifice who took on human flesh to be our substitute, fulfill the law, and save us. You know, as we go on in John, we're going to see how Jesus fulfills everything. The first uh, 12 chapters, we're calling the book of signs. Jesus does seven signs, seven I am statements. And it's showing how Jesus specifically fulfills institutions and festivals of Israel. Like he fulfills a, a wedding and portrays the wedding banquet at the end of time. We're going to see this as we go through the Gospel of John. And then beginning in chapter 13, we go on to see the book of glory. It shows his glory to his disciples in the upper room discourse. We walk through the last days of his life, his death on the cross, and then the last two chapters of the book are his resurrection and resurrection appearances. All of this flows out of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Now, I just want to say these two things. First of all, if you're not a Christian yet, could we have coffee or something and talk about Jesus? I mean, there is so much evidence historical evidence, Bible evidence, scientific evidence pointing to the reality of God. And through Jesus, we can know him. I would love to have coffee. I'm sure Glenn would or Eric, uh, any, anyone here, maybe someone who brought you. If you don't yet know this God, you've got a wonderful thing in store. Keep searching. The very fact that you're here is probably a sign that God is already at work in you. So cooperate with, the, with him and learn more.
If you are a Christian, could I say these things? First of all, do you realize that when we understand that Jesus became a human being and that he's the same essence of the Father, that it changes the way you look at yourself? It directly impacts your identity when you see Jesus for who he really is. Because now you're beginning to see that he forgives sin by his death on the cross. And he uh, is walking with you, embracing you despite the guilt. He brings you through something deeper than the shame of a past guilty conscience. He guides through problems. He gives hope. Yes, we enjoy science and psychology. It's good to save money for retirement. And social media can be a positive thing. But ultimately, these things will fail you. In fact, they can be destructive to your health. But reflection on Jesus Christ which I've seen people converted to Jesus Christ and immediately their facial complexion was changed. I've seen people who were angry, bitter people and when Christ invaded their life and they were born again, they had a smile on their face. I've seen them visibly relieved. That's what the scripture is saying. Knowing Christ, we learn about ourselves. And secondly, when we learn of Christ, we see transformation. Because the more you study Christ, you see that he is not interested in making us nicer people. Nothing could be further from the truth. We're Iowa nice. Jesus is not impressed with Iowa nice. And I've been born and raised in Iowa. Even graduated from the University of Iowa, which is not great if you're from Michigan. But he's not interested in making us nice or nicer. Yes, he loves us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us where we are. And so the more you read the Gospel of John and absorb what he's saying, you should expect transformation. You should expect being uncomfortable. You should expect that you are going to want to humble yourself before God and ask him for a greater understanding of his glory and power. What a God we have. Eugene Peterson wrote a book called The Message, kind of a paraphrase of the scripture. He used the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, to write it. I talked, had the privilege of talking to him about it one time at a lunch. This is what he says in verse 14, which I think is a fitting conclusion. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw his glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory. Like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. Let's praise him, shall we? Father, thank you so much for being a good, good father and loving us so much that you revealed yourself 
through your Son, Jesus. And Lord, I pray for a greater understanding as we walk through the Gospel of John. May we hear again that ancient word that has the life-transforming effect upon us to see you for who you are, to see our need, our sin, our need of repentance and faith, to see Jesus' death and resurrection in our place, and then to be transformed by your grace. Come in the power of your spirit and change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we want to divide up into small groups. If you're new to prayer, I always like to say, you don't have to pray out loud. You can just join a group and kind of listen in. You can share your own prayer request if you need to. Um, I think Glenn has mentioned that uh, leaders here might want to join a group just to be a part of it. Might keep your eye out for that. And we're going to look at two prayer prompts. The first one is, I'd like us to think through the five affirmations Jesus uh, that John made about Jesus and just praise him. Just take some time to praise him for who he is with those five affirmations. And maybe at the same time, pray for someone you know who would say, because God is invisible, I, I don't think I can know him. Pray for that person. And then secondly, pray for someone you know who has trouble believing in God or struggles to understand how Jesus can both be all-powerful and yet human. And pray that we here at Redeemer can be equipped through the Gospel of John to proclaim Jesus to family and friends. Also pray for our pastor search team as they're seeking candidates and pray for the sale of the, the building. So let's divide into groups and just spend uh, a few minutes in prayer, shall we? And we'll have that posted on the screen, the first prayer prompt, and then after a few minutes, we'll post the other one. Let's pray together.